St. Vincent, a tropical island in the West Indies. It's home to bright sandy beaches, beautiful blue oceans, and palm trees. For many, it's the perfect holiday destination. For Daniel Pope, it's home. Daniel has just graduated from college. He's 24 and starting to figure out what to do with his life. One day, he's scrolling through the internet on his laptop, clicking through different sites. Maybe he'll find a graduate job. But then he stumbles upon an ad. Basically saying, you know, if you're characterful, resourceful, energetic, apply for this show. The ad was for contestants for a new TV show. But beyond stating what characteristics were needed, no further information was given. Daniel was suspicious, but not as much as he was curious. Why not give it a go, he thought. I mean, he probably won't hear back, but what did he have to lose? To his surprise, he actually got a reply. It came from a company called Nikita Russian Productions. Surprisingly enough, it was run by a guy named Nick Russian. So Nick Russian is a really fascinating character. You've probably never heard of Nick, but for some people, he's a name and face they'll never forget. He was charismatic, I think quite good-looking guy, quite big. A charming, good-looking guy, big in size, with big dreams. Dreams of making the next hit reality show. When I read about Nick Russian, I was like, I'd watch this show. And then I realized, I was like, what is wrong with me? What is wrong with me? <laughs> then I was like, I would watch this. Nick Russian's plan was a simple but effective one. Gather a group of normal people, ask them to give up their entire lives, and compete in a show. Perform well, and you can expect fame and riches. One of those normal people was none other than Daniel Pope. After Daniel received the email from Nick, he decided to trade in paradise and head to the cold gray city of London, all for a chance to be cast in Nick's show. You know the saying, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. Well, this was a plan that went terribly wrong. Russian's ambition got the better of him, and he left a trail of broken dreams and promises in his wake. I'm Alzo Slade, and from something else, this is Cheap, the show where we ask the question, is it ever okay to break the rules? This week, what happens when show business turns into no business? And how far would you go for a chance at fame? mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, back in the 2000s, I remember all these different shows starting to pop up. Shows about real people competing against one another in often wacky circumstances, all to win a prize. There may be fewer channels, but certainly the internet isn't 
what it is today. So people, you feel, are kind of consuming moments, media moments together. That's Nick. No, not the Nick Russian guy we mentioned earlier. This Nick is a journalist and has written about this story extensively for Vice. Any kind of cultural moment, like a reality TV show, you get the feeling it probably cut through more and more people would know about it. Millions of people in front of the TV, night after night, watching these shows. Then going into work or school the next day, talking about what happened, who they hate, who they love, how they can't believe what so-and-so did on camera. Everyone knows at this point the power that reality TV show has and its ability to change someone's life. These contestants, they became overnight stars. We debate how real they were or whether it was real at all. They were absorbed into the public conscious and became part of the furniture of popular culture. Now, 20 years later, things haven't changed that much. Reality TV is still a huge part of television. These days, we've got shows like Too Hot to Handle, Naked and Afraid, and one that I find crazier than the others, Married at First Sight. Our obsession is usually the people we see on screen. But have you ever wondered how the sausage is made? Who these people are coming up with these crazy ideas in the first place? And how they find the people willing to put themselves in these ridiculous situations? Our story this week is about a guy with ambition and an idea that he hoped would be the next big thing in reality TV. And what happens when his reality comes crashing down. My name is Stephanie Van Schilt. I'm a TV critic, a podcast producer, and a reality TV nut. That's Steph. And like a lot of us, she likes a good reality show. And when I say like, I mean loves. I'm watching Married at First Sight Australia, Survivor Australia, Survivor US, I always watch The Real Housewives, so at the moment we have Real Housewives of New Jersey and Real Housewives of Orange County. I watch Below Deck Down Under, Below Deck Sailing Yacht, Summer House, Domino Masters, Candy and the Gang, Love is Blind Japan, and Top Chef. And that's just the ones that I could remember off the top of my head. Mmm, see, I told you, she loves this stuff. It's kind of hard to imagine not having all these shows on our screens. We take it for granted now, but there was a time when reality TV wasn't even really a thing. I mean, you had MTV's The Real World, which came out in 1992. And then one day, out of nowhere, this show hits the screen. <laughs> if you're a fan, hell, even if you're not, you probably already know that's the intro to Survivor. Released in 2000, it's one of the first and longest-running reality TV shows. And by that, I mean 42 seasons. Yes, it's been going on for 22 years now, which is wild. The show featured a bunch of normal, everyday people stuck on an island competing against each other in weird and wacky challenges for the chance to win a prize. It's a pretty simple format, and the audience... They loved it. It was watched by, like, an average of, I think, 51.7 million viewers. So it was just, like, this height of popularity. And then from there, a whole bunch of shows were spawned. 
the folks at the network started realizing that people kind of dig this stuff. And pretty soon, more and more shows of a similar nature started to be released. Reality TV is a blanket term for a lot of subgenres. So from, you know, the cooking shows to the makeovers and the house transformation shows to the dating shows, the lifestyle, the social experiments. It felt like there was a show for every kind of hobby. And it wasn't just high production values and good editing that made them a big hit. It's the sense of relatability, seeing people like you and not some Hollywood star on your screen. We like to see ourselves and what we can learn in these extreme situations about our own life and what we can take back and what we would do and what we wouldn't do. So the ability to kind of almost judge and assess and bring out ourselves into the forefront and to know that, like, we were just talking about, there's a chance that you could be part of it, right? Like, it's not out of the realm of possibility. It's not old Hollywood where it's like you could never be part of it. That's the thing. You don't need to have gone to Juilliard to be cast. You just have to be, well, you. And that makes the characters a bit more real. We watch a show like Big Brother and think, I would have known not to do that. Or you think, Maybe you can be on the next season. Maybe it will be your turn next. Whichever camp you fall into, that realism and perceived accessibility of reality TV is one of its greatest assets. But why? Because the on-screen stars, they aren't really stars. They're just like us. Pretty normal. And when you see those normal people become rich and famous simply from appearing on a show, it gives us all hope. It's the American dream. So there are kind of more cynical reasons or smart reasons for people to go on shows like this to make a career like if you or I want to host a podcast, the best way to do it is to go on a reality show. If you want to get more followers and make money from hashtag SponCon, you're doing it by going on reality TV. That's like the ultimate Kardashian effect, right? But it wasn't just the contestants who had a shot at fame and riches. The people behind the scenes did as well. If people can create a great reality TV show, Mark Burnett, who's behind Survivor, is also you know, behind a multitude of reality TV shows that have been on TV. So he has like an empire. To put it simply, if you have a half-decent idea and manage to somehow get it on television, there's a chance you can become rich. And that's what led one literature undergrad to come up with his own reality TV show. Nick Karoshin, basically, he was a Goldsmiths English student. Goldsmiths is like this artsy college in London that's famous for churning out lots of creative media types. And even though Nick didn't study a television-related course at Goldsmiths or do internships at production companies on the side, he still had the confidence. I mean... You know, a good idea is a good idea. And that's what Nick felt he had. An idea different to all the shows out there at the time. But a show that still fit the format of reality TV. Normal people competing against each other for the ultimate prize. Cash money. Get a cast of random people to take part in, like, a competition across a year. And then at the end, they would win a cash prize. Now, you might be thinking, that sounds pretty run-of-the-mill. And like a lot of the shows out there. And yeah, it kind of does. In 2022. 
But back then, it was pretty unique. And what made this show extra special was what people had to do in order to take part. Quit their jobs, move out of their house, sell their cars, potentially break up with their partners. Give up your career, move home, basically change your whole life, and spend 12 months traveling around the world performing tasks. And at the end of the show, someone is crowned winner and gets the dough. Nick knew that if he was going to get this show off the ground, he'd have to convince contestants to take the leap. He put notice boards out in colleges, put adverts in newspapers, notes online, basically saying, apply for this show, you'll be working on it for a year, and you can win £100,000. That's like $150,000 in today's money. Nick put ads in an industry publication called The Stage and The Evening Standard, London's local paper. All he had to do now was sit and wait to see if anyone would apply. The only real details Nick had included were an email address and a phone number. Yeah, it was cryptic. But people perceived the crypticness as like, oh, this is like Big Brother. You know, this is just some kind of experiment. And maybe the cryptic nature of the message is is part of it. I mean, think about it. These shows are shrouded in secrecy. I guess it makes better TV when the contestants are walking in blind. Nick's mysterious ads seemed to do the trick. After they went live, his phone and email started blowing up. The number of people applying was incredible. I mean, it was in the thousands. Nick was completely overwhelmed. He couldn't take everybody. So how the hell was he supposed to narrow it down? It was time for Nikita Russian Productions to hold some auditions. More on that after the break. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. On a small island on the River Thames, hundreds of people are gathering for the chance to become the next big star of reality TV. The auditions on this little island in the Thames near Hampton Court uh, called Raven's 8. Raven's 8 is this privately owned venue. It's usually used for conferences, weddings, or company training days. It's a pretty good setup for a casting day. Somehow he talks the talks the owner or the manager of Raven's 8 to allow the auditions for free, essentially. And Raven's 8 put on this event and they put up 
canopies and everything. I think on the premise that there'll be exposure, like free exposure for Ravens 8 once the TV show comes out. For a lot of people there, this audition was their first real taste of life in television. There's a lot of people kind of flitting in and out. The cameras were rolling. They were just really excited. The potential contestants all together, now it was up to Nick to find the ones who'd make a good fit. You know, the characters who'll keep the viewers hooked. There's a whole science behind the casting process for reality shows. There are a lot of archetypes that will be cast. So like a more naive person, a really smart person, someone who's like a super fan of the show. Producers don't just go, oh, I like the look of Karen and Joel. I'll use them. They're looking for people the audience can identify with. We follow these people online. We have this parasocial kind of relationship with them that makes us feel like we're part of the, the community. Nick thought he knew what type of characters the audience wanted and the ones that wouldn't work. But he had some unusual methods of figuring out the contestants. They did um, activities. I think they also kind of went through some kind of quasi-psychological <laughs> testing and stuff like that. I, th I think they also were kind of working in groups, and I, I get the feeling it was kind of like trust exercises. This is not the kind of simple trust exercise where you just close your eyes and you fall backwards hoping that your partner will catch you. This is the kind where you have to build trust with a group of people you've never met by carrying out some kind of weird task. I know one of the groups basically had to go and make a cake. They didn't have any produce or anything. They just had to go and door knock and try and convince someone to let them all in uh, and let them make this cake. And this like lovely, lovely old lady lets them in. And you kind of... That bit's really fascinating because it kind of just like would never happen now. Hold on, hold on, wait, 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 wait a minute. So these guys were just running around knocking on strangers' homes, asking to use their ovens and borrow ingredients? I'm telling you right now, if they were knocking on my door, this TV show would never make it to air. They make this cake. I think they do it successfully. And I guess, you know, the idea is, well, you're going to be working together in teams. You, we, you need to show us that you're capable of doing it, surviving on your own. By the end of the audition process, Nick had weeded the group down to 30. And those final 30 were given contracts to sign. Basically, the contracts were just trying to ensure that all of the contestants were fully in this and also didn't have any just didn't have any like, real assets and didn't have anything tethering them to, to their lives. The contestants were hesitant, and rightly so. Some even sought out legal advice before agreeing to anything. I spoke to a couple of people, like contestants, who brought their contracts to um, solicitors, and they were all like, no way, don't, don't go anywhere near this. Despite the red flags, there were some perks, stuff like, they would be provided with accommodation, food, travel. Yeah, you're not working and you don't have a roof over your head, but it's cool because all that stuff will be provided for you. And at the end of all of this, there's a good chance you'll be famous and maybe have 100,000 bucks to your name. One of the people to sign on the dotted line was Daniel Pope. Having made it through the audition process, he packed his bags, left his home in St. Vincent, and headed to London for the gap year of a lifetime. It's Monday, the 10th of June, 2002. 
and Daniel is making his way through London on the subway. An old Victorian underground station was the rendezvous point for the first day of the reality show he just agreed to take part in. It's cold, damp, smelly, and full of people. It's a far cry from his home in the Caribbean. So there he was, with 29 of his fellow contestants, all of them strangers to him, and they're gathered around to learn what the next year of their life had in store. This was the place Nick Russian will finally reveal to them the rules of the game. You're in groups of 10, there's three groups. In each group, there's a cameraman slash contestant. And you're going to work together in your group to try and earn a million pounds between between 10 people. You're going to try and earn a million. So if you're confused, don't worry. Because Daniel and the other contestants were puzzled too. There's something a bit off about what Nick is saying. They were going to have to earn the money themselves? They knew they were going to be doing some tasks. They knew those tasks might involve money. But they didn't know they were essentially generating the cash prize themselves. I mean, if 10 random strangers can come together and make a million pounds over the course of a year just like that, then everybody would be doing it, right? As the first day of filming unfolded, the contestants started to have more and more calls for concern. Nick was just dropping bombshells all over the place. You guys are going to work together. You've got to find accommodation. You've got to find food. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on just a doggone minute. Find food and accommodation. These guys just quit their jobs and gave up their homes because Nick said you were going to provide these things. So not only did they have to make their own prize money, they were also having to be totally self-sufficient. I mean, the more I think about it, this is sounding a hell of a lot like reality and less like TV. Turns out, food and accommodation weren't the only thing the contestants had to source by themselves. You also have to find other contestants because all of the groups were undermanned by one or two or however many. So you're on day one, they're having to try and encourage people to join this wacky <laughs> uh, reality TV show. If it sounds like this show is a car crash, that's because it was. I think her name is Lucy, the presenter. She's doing her best job of trying to make it seem exciting and not terrifying <laughs> that these people have taken this massive leap for something that isn't what it seemed because basically the show wasn't going to be offering any of the things it claimed to be offering. And as more things come to light, people start to get even more pissed. So there's massive disquiet <laughs> at this point because they realize it's all really flawed. It's only day one, and confusion had turned to anger, and that anger had nearly reached boiling point. The contestants wanted answers. They had a hotline that all these contestants were able to call. So Nick Russian had provided a number for people to call if they got into trouble. And the hotline was just manned by his mom. Yeah, you heard that right. This dude has his mom putting out the fires. I mean, that's pretty ridiculous and just kind of sad. Thinking of my own mom, if I was like, hey, mom, I'm doing this thing. And she'd be like, oh, I don't know what that is. But sure, I'll talk to strangers. Give me a chance. 
After the chaos of the first day and all the failed promises, a few contestants said, hell no, I'm done with this. But Nick managed to convince 10 people to stay, telling them that the hiccups and the blunders were all part of the show. I guess, in a way, if you look at a show like Survivor, you could potentially convince the cast that that's part of it, right? Like, oh, you're all under one roof. It's about living in these rough conditions. The remaining contestants were pretty much forced to stay at the apartment of one of the cameramen named Tim. Now, can you imagine being Tim? You sign up to be a cameraman on a TV show, and the first day of shooting, you got a whole load of strangers sleeping on your floor. But get this, you'll never guess who was staying there with them. Nick Russian was also staying there because seemingly Nick Russian also doesn't have anywhere to live. <laughs> so it's not funny. Now, you got to admit, it's kind of like a joke. This slick, hotshot producer who told everyone to quit their jobs, give up their homes, and take part in this show also seems to have quit his job and given up his home to take part in his show. Now, that's commitment or stupidity. This wasn't exactly the slick setup the contestants experienced at the audition. Remember all those people running around at that fancy building on the River Thames? They were all Nick's friends. I mean, his girlfriend had even taken on the role of the psychological assessor. And just when you think this dude doesn't have any more secrets to hide, someone visiting Tim's apartment let slip another piece of information, which raises suspicions even more. Someone who worked at a bookshop with him that was like, hang on, I know that name. I know that name. That guy's not a producer. He works at this bookshop with me. It turned out Nick was no longer studying at Goldsmith's. He actually dropped out before his exams and was working at a chain bookstore called Waterstones. And Nick Russian wasn't even his real name. His actual name was Keith. Nick Russian's birth name was Keith Gillard. Russian was the third name he'd gone by, so he changed it twice already by deed poll. For the remaining cast members, this was it. They had had enough, and they demanded that Nick, or Keith, come clean to them. On day two, there's um, clear the air talks by the Thames. Nick gathered the contestants together to explain what the hell has been going on. And those clear the air talks don't go exactly as planned. Russian is still saying things like, yeah, if we just get a pilot together, I'm, I'm pretty confident like we can, get, we can get a backer, we can get a TV show on board. You know, people are interested. So still kind of selling a dream. And everyone by that point can pretty much see through it. Nick's show, it was a sham. There was just no, nothing behind it. There's no money behind it, no backing, no commission. Daniel and his fellow contestants were absolutely furious, and rightly so. They just found out that they'd given up everything for nothing. If I were in their shoes, I'd be packing my bags and getting the hell out of Tim's apartment, probably slapping Nick or Keith or whoever the hell he was on the way out. But these guys, they didn't do that. Despite all that had gone down, they decided to stick around. We'll find out why after the break.
Picture this. You've quit your job, left your home, and traveled to a completely different country, all to fulfill a dream of fame and fortune. And then a few days later, you find out the guy who sold you on this dream is a fraud. And that road to success, it doesn't exist. You feel like an idiot. Maybe you feel like returning home back to your friends and family with your tail between your legs just ain't an option. So you decide to stay and try to salvage what you can. Throughout this week, the the kind of atmosphere in that flat's quite interesting because although they've kind of been bamboozled in this way, they're committed to this idea that they can make something special still because they felt like they, they were quite a good cast. I mean, could you even call them a cast at this point? If there's no show, there can't really be a cast, can there? Well, these guys, they beg to differ. They signed up to become reality TV stars. They didn't need Nick Russian, the pretend television producer. They were going to make their own show. They set up their own kind of diary room, like Big Brother style. They will come in and talk to camera about what's going on, how they're feeling. So they're, they're thinking is they can, it's very meta, but they can try and make a reality TV show about their reality of having tried to be on a reality TV show. I mean, this wasn't a bad idea. A reality show about people who were trying to get on a reality show but got scammed? I'd watch it. Hell, we're making a podcast episode about it. And unlike Nick, they actually managed to get some people interested. On June 12, 2002, that's just day three for anyone keeping track, Tim the cameraman contacted a local news program, London Tonight. The contestants actually locked Nick in the apartment until the journalist arrived and interviewed him. One of the contestants, Debbie, reaches out to a production company. It's, I think, that production company who ultimately made the documentary. The production company was Christmas Film and Television, and the documentary about the contestants' experience of being on a fake show was commissioned by one of the UK's biggest channels, Channel 4. When Nick heard what was going down, he fled. But Daniel wasn't going to let him get away that easily. He tracked him down to where he was hiding and convinced him to be interviewed for the documentary. In the end, Nick agreed. Nick Russian has to basically apologize. On TV, he says he's become a figure of hate, and, and rightly so. The program was released on Channel 4 in December of 2002. It was called The Great Reality TV Swindle. It basically turned Nick into a walking pariah. But because he hadn't actually taken the money from the contestants, he hadn't technically committed a crime. And the civil case was not pursued because there were no funds to do so. So Nick walked away without any serious repercussions. But don't forget, this show was his ticket as well. It was his dreams that had also been dashed. I think he believed in what he was doing. I think he genuinely believed that he could get a pilot and he can get a TV production company behind it and he can get backing, financial backing for the prize money and everything. I think he was genuine in that belief, so I don't want to say that he is a kind of real bad guy. I think he actually believed in all of that. But obviously the reality is that wasn't in place by the time filming started. 
I mean, when you think about reality TV, there's not much real about it. It's all kind of smoke and mirrors. The storylines are pretty unbelievable. The characters are exaggerated. The tears flow at an unnatural rate. It's kind of the perfect environment for people to try and fake it until they make it. That desire for fame and fortune, it's a hell of a drug. And it drives the entire industry. The people on camera are looking for a quick fix, and the people behind the scenes are selling it. And that's where the problem lay. Nick's overambition, leaping before he could walk, ending up screwing over a whole lot of people. But does having a dream and pursuing it, no matter the cost, make you a cheat? I mean, he cheated. He cheated these people of an opportunity, and he cheated them of hope, and he lied to them. In the end, he did cause some real harm and some real upset for a lot of people. In the eyes of a lot of people, he's a figure of hate, like you said, and that they... They'd hate to see him today because they'd probably still cuss him out. Hey, folks, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Cheat wherever you get it. And please do leave a rating and a review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. Also, if you want to listen to the show without the ads, you can subscribe to Cheat Plus. It's like Cheat, but better. It's just $2.99 a month, or if you're in the UK, £2.49. And you get all of this without having to listen to those annoying commercials. Just go to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe instead of follow. You can try it for free now. Next week on Cheat. And when we come down to the objects themselves, we're not talking about thousands of, of pounds. We're not talking about hundreds of thousands of pounds. We're talking about millions of pounds. And something which is worth that sort of money is life-changing. And I think they probably thought we can get away with it because nobody knows what's been found. Only we do. Cheat is written and presented by me, Alzo Slade. This episode was produced by Kaf Opata. The executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. The series editor is Tom Fuller. Engineering and sound design by Sam Baer. Our production coordinators are Jennifer Mystery and Iker Egbatola. <laughs>